The mental health challenges of life in lockdown. Clearly there are periods of isolation. For some people, I mean, it's been really, really challenging. Now the pandemic threatens crisis hit Yemen. We are one single world and not showing solidarity with Yemen today means that we will pay the price tomorrow. And how NATO's countering COVID disinformation. The pandemic has given new opportunities to hostile actors. The danger in disinformation in, in a crisis like this is because we're dealing with health and health issues. I'm Kate Chabot and this is SITREP. More than 20,000 troops who've been on high readiness since March as part of the COVID support force are to have their numbers reduced to 7,500. The military has been deeply involved throughout the crisis, building hospitals, delivering PPE and running mobile testing. We'll be discussing that with the Defence Minister, Johnny Mercer. But first, one of the key issues highlighted throughout the pandemic has been the effect on people's mental health and well-being. This is Mental Health Awareness Week and its theme is kindness. Well, one charity that's been trying to help some of those most vulnerable is Combat Stress. And in the last few months, they've seen the work expand considerably, as Rosie Layden explains. I think we're at a very tricky stage, particularly for... For vulnerable people, it's very helpful, it's Mental Health Week, I think, actually. Combat Stress Chief Executive Sue Threef explaining how hard the lockdown is on those already struggling with mental health difficulties. The charity has had to cease face-to-face contact, but their 24-hour helpline remains open and they're offering remote support to those able to access it. Not everybody wants to complete or can complete a therapy uh, treatment online. They may not have the right equipment, or they may not have the environment at home where they can do something that's really this uh, private. Lockdown itself is reducing anxiety for some while having the reverse effect for others. Peer support is working particularly well. So we're doing a regular weekly check-in and a daily check-in actually for those who want and need something every day. Some veterans feel actually safer at the moment because lockdown is restricting their exposure and they've got their family around them. I think for others, you know, actually that is more difficult. Uh, the restriction is, is sort of an exacerbating some of the things that we lean on, so there's a bit more drinking. Uh, it's quite difficult to keep our kind of emotional selves well. And some veterans who, whose trauma has been related to a disease or infection or a fear of some form of viral exposure, that's obviously further exacerbating their mental health. Mark Herbie Herbert served with the 1st Battalion, the Staffordshire Regiment, in the 1980s. His service in Northern Ireland left him badly affected with PTSD. I didn't really have a life as such. I was, um, I was just existing. I was so depressed. Every day was a struggle to just do anything at all. I lost all my confidence. Um, I didn't want to meet people. I didn't want to talk to people. I was very angry at the world because I knew there was something wrong, but I didn't know what it was. Getting in touch with combat stress in 2012 turned his life around. He has a message for anyone struggling today. All I can say is it, it's hard to stay focused, but you have to stay focused because life is worth living. There is help out there. It's not easy. It really is frightening, but it is worth it. Pick up that phone 
and bring that number to be able to talk to somebody that can understand. With the added pressure of coronavirus and the lockdown, Mental Health Awareness Week is shining a welcome spotlight on those who struggle with mental trauma every day. That report by Rosie Layden. Well, earlier I spoke to the minister responsible for people and veterans, Johnny Mercer, and asked him about the impact of the pandemic on mental health. Clearly, there are periods of isolation. For some people, I mean, being in a, in a small apartment or a flat with young children and, you know, feeling the pressure to kind of homeschool them and stuff. I think it's been really, really challenging. You know, Mental Health Awareness Week's come at a really important time. The more we try and get people to understand that mental health is something that you really look after, like your physical health, like you go for a run or you try and eat healthily, you know, you need to spend time looking after your mental health. And if you do that, you really can look after yourself. Uh, And what are the practical steps that are being taken to help particularly people in the military with their mental health at the moment? Well, for example, one thing I'm really keen on is that we speak to everyone every day. So we have a a lot of Zoom calls. I know that everyone's sort of been going slightly mad with the amount of teleconferencing we've been doing. But it's, it's really important part of checking up on our people, making sure that uh, we're still getting a a good level of output from them. I mean, defence challenges continue. Uh, We launched HeadFit. Anybody can go on the website. It's not about mental health treatment. It's more about maintaining good mental fitness, if you like, and how sports players and, and veterans who've recovered and so on, what they've done to maintain good mental health, why it's important and techniques and things that you can uh, learn and employ during this time so that we are having and maintaining a healthier uh, and happier workforce. Have there been any advantages, do you think, to lockdown for people with their mental health? I mean, are there any positives, can you see? I think there have been positives, you know. For someone like me who has a lot of meetings and things like that, it's been easier to sort of get through the work a bit faster um, because you can literally kind of flick from meeting to meeting. Family time for a UK military that spends a lot of time away from home, uh, deployed in operations, working very hard. Family time is something that I, I think uh, I, I think is obviously a very positive thing for our people. So there's been pros and cons. It's different. And undoubtedly, I think things will remain different for some time to come. And it's how we adapt to that challenge and come out of lockdown that I think will really shape the future in the near to medium term. Labour has pressed for more money to be spent on mental health within the armed forces. What's your response to that? Any minister in the MOD is never going to turn down uh, more money for defence or mental health or any of the projects we're doing because we believe passionately in it. We believe passionately in our people and we want to do better all the time. But what I would say is that more money is going into this area than than ever before. I'm absolutely determined to turn around this experience of being a defence person or a veteran in this country. And instead of asking what we're putting into the machine, saying, trying to make these lives better, what does it actually feel like to serve in the military in 2020 in this country? What does it feel like to be a veteran in Plymouth, Birmingham, Manchester, um, in the UK in in 2020? I'm confident we are making real strides and real progress, absolutely cognizant of the fact that we have some way to go. And yet some charities, though, like Combat Stress, have complained um, earlier on uh, this year that they've struggled to get the funding they need. They're getting a reduction in their funding. Well, I think uh, there is undoubtedly going to be a reshaping of the charity sector. I mean, these are charities. They are independent organisations. What's critical for me is that we meet the challenge and that for the individuals, that service is there. Now, that is clearly a blend of uh, third sector and statutory provision. Um, and we all have to change to to meet that. So, look, I understand that people will think funding's gone down in some areas and up in other areas, but it's absolutely right that we continually 
configure this system so it's wrapped around those who need it, i.e. the veterans and the service people. Just to talk more specifically about the pandemic, um, we have the news that fewer military personnel are going to be used in the coming weeks. Is it the right time to, to stand down these numbers? Look, we, we maintain a, a regular balance of uh, forces at both the reserve and the regular level to deal with any demand signals that come in uh, in terms of military assistance to civil authority. You know, we've done that throughout this process. Yes, there was a stand-up of the COVID force at the beginning. We've seen soldiers and airmen and sailors and, and so on employed up and down the country. And, you know, it's right that as that continues, that that response is, is configured accordingly. We're an agile organisation. We meet the challenge. We're there to serve. And as that challenge changes, so will we. And in terms of the use of the military uh, throughout this pandemic, uh, we spoke to Tobias Selwood, chair of the Commons Defence Select Committee. Uh, they're going to be looking at whether the right use of the military was made in the early stages and whether the military was used enough at cabinet level or consulted enough. Um, do you think there were missed opportunities? Look, Kate, it's, it's not for me to say when the military should and shouldn't be used. That is a political decision. It would be completely wrong for me to uh, to be involved now. We, you know, we react to demand signals that come out of government. And when they, there is military assistance to civil authority asked for, we're constantly planning and configuring our to make sure that we're in the most effective places in order to be able to react in a timely manner. And you see it across this country time again, whether it's in floods, reinforcing dams, whether it's been in coronavirus, testing, shielding people, delivering medicines, you know. And I just pay tribute to our, our people who, you know, you join the, the military for a set of reasons and ideas, I suppose, and then, um, you know, you end up doing something completely different, but they just adapt to get on with it and deliver it with the same passion, ethos, values, um, as they always have. And I, I just pay tribute to them at this time. As we move forward, to easing the lockdown. This contact tracing is absolutely uh, vital, as the government says. Some criticism of that. W would you welcome the military being involved in that? Look, I, I think uh, we're much closer to where we need to be on this than, uh, than it than is portrayed. Uh, the Prime Minister made a commitment in the House of Commons yesterday, 25,000. I think uh, we're almost there on that. You know, it's, it's, it's the same as the other stuff, Kate. If a military assistance signal is triggered, then of course... We stand ready to assist and the planning for that continues as you would expect to make sure that uh, we, we react in a timely and professional manner. That was the Defence Minister Johnny Mercer. Well, with me is our Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Uh, Christopher, on the reduction in numbers in the COVID Defence Force, the MOD says this 7,500 figure will be kept under review. I suppose that's kind of a given, is it? 7,500 people. That's roughly an enlarged brigade can be activated at any time and also being able to do some of the jobs which are not necessarily publicised. I mentioned this uh, inquiry that's being conducted into the way the military have or haven't been used. Do you think it, there will be a lot of criticism that comes out of that? I wouldn't have thought so. I mean, it may be that somebody will say, why weren't the military used beforehand? If you go back to 2016, there was something called Operation Sickness, which was saying that we were going to face such a disease as this the services got on with it and set up a, a, an exercise to see how they would handle it. That's two years ago. Now, that may be the sort of criticism, but not the way that it's being done. The, 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 all the, the services have said to the, the government this time, what do you need doing? We can help you there. From our experience, this is the best way of doing it. That's what's happened. This is Zitrap. 
The British Army has joined a new NATO initiative to combat what it describes as harmful disinformation targeting the West. The alliance has warned the pandemic is providing a breeding ground for propaganda and false information and has set up a research task force. Among the experts are two from the British Army, as well as scientists from allies including the US, the Netherlands and Norway. I asked NATO Deputy Spokesman Piers Cazalet how serious the threat was. Well, it's a threat that we've been dealing with for some time. It's a bad problem. Various actors have used it for centuries, but we've seen it getting particularly bad since 2014. Uh, Under the pandemic, uh, it's got even worse. I think um, some actors have spotted some vulnerabilities and they're trying to make the most of it. What kind of vulnerabilities are you talking about? What have they done and who's done it? Well, in terms of what's been done, um, there's a number of uh, specific things that we can point to. So there's information that's uh, that's been issued, for example, uh, the Russian foreign ministry who said that uh, coronavirus might have been created by the US uh, working with Georgia in, uh, in labs in that country. And the Chinese embassy in Paris, for example, who have tweeted uh, about staff in care homes in France abandoning their patients to starvation and death. So there are various sources and various uh, bits of information like this coming out. NATO itself has been uh, hit by this. Uh, in April, we had uh, we saw evidence of uh, a fake letter uh, purportedly signed by the Secretary General saying that NATO was going to be withdrawing its troops from Lithuania because of the COVID crisis. Uh, this was, it was pure disinformation. Uh, there was no such letter. Uh, it had been forged uh, and, and put out on uh, networks by, uh, we're not quite sure who. So you have this uh, new research group. What will the British Army experts be doing and what will it be doing? Well, we have a number of initiatives within NATO looking at disinformation. Uh, the research group that you mentioned is uh, is one of them that's working in one part of NATO. The uh, two army experts that we've got, um, they bring particular expertise with them. They're military officers who have worked on uh, cross-government initiatives in the UK, uh, working with uh, the Cabinet Office, with the Foreign Office, with the Ministry of Defence, with the Home Office and others. So they bring this expertise to us and they're helping us uh, to look at the way that we're dealing with disinformation uh, in a way that we can share best practice with other allies as well. Just how dangerous can disinformation be? I think it it can be very dangerous uh, if it's successful. We've been able to counter it fairly effectively over the last uh, five or six years. But the pandemic has given new opportunities to hostile actors. The danger in disinformation in in a crisis like this is because we're dealing with health and health issues. Uh, If you put disinformation out there, then people can pick up wrong information about Uh, about the pandemic, about how to respond to the pandemic. Uh, So it can affect people's health. Um, But also, you know, more broadly, it's something which can undermine trust in governments. It can undermine trust in civil society. And for an alliance like NATO, it can sow division between allies. You mentioned a number of countries that have been behind disinformation so far. What are they trying to achieve and what could they achieve? Well, it's hard to know what specific objectives they, they might have, but I think it's it's all about undermining democracy and undermining the strength of societies and the strength of civil societies. If you like, one of the paradoxes we have is that as a democratic society, we are open. Uh, So we allow information to flow freely. We don't control information, um, as happens in some other countries. But this means that societies can become vulnerable to disinformation. So I think it's largely about sowing confusion and undermining democracy. 
And what kind of success? You mentioned you have successfully so far uh, countered some of these disinformation attacks, if I can call it that. How have you done that? What's working? Well, we've at NATO, we focused in particular on attacks uh, against NATO itself, and in particular in relation to the NATO deployments we have in the Baltic states, uh, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia and Poland. This is something we've been working on for some years. So when we've seen elements of disinformation coming up, We've worked together with colleagues across the alliance to work out, do we need to rebut a particular piece of information? Uh, do we need to just let it drop and let it uh, let it die? Do we need to change our messaging? But it's always in coordination with, for example, the troop sending countries to the Baltic states and with the host nations as well and with others to make sure that we're all having a consistent approach to disinformation. That was Piers Cazalet from NATO. Christopher, uh, this is a growing problem, as we heard. What do you think the actors behind it are trying to achieve? Russia has never got over the fact that it lost the Warsaw Pact countries, the near abroad, as it called it. There are organisations within the Russian armed forces that actually put still the Russian case. And they put it and they slip it into Twitter and they slip it into the social media. And they do it because that's what they believe. The other side of it is that they know jolly well that quite often the news organisations within Western Europe, certainly, don't always challenge the information that they're getting. It's a good headline. It's worth it. So it, it's easy to keep going to try and change things from what are never going to be changed. Mm, it's, it's interesting also that the NATO spokesman thought sometimes the most effective thing to do is just to ignore disinformation, to avoid giving it uh, more traction. That is a t- traditional NATO line of, of, of thought that if they don't like it they ignore it but but how do you get the balance right though christopher you don't try and get the balance right that's what he's suggesting you know you get a story that, that, that comes up and you ignore it and the next day another story will come up so it's all gone away mm. all right christopher stay with us well coronavirus is having a devastating effect across the world but some countries like yemen are dealing with it against a background of war starvation and disease. There are reports of a dramatic rise in cases of people dying after contracting the virus in the port city of Aden. Yemen's health system has been damaged by years of civil war. Ventilators and other vital equipment are in short supply. In Yemen, medical engineer Lueta al-Mahabashi fears this could be one crisis too many for the country. The, the situation is really dangerous. Like, it's going to be a really big disaster in my country. Uh, Yemen is going to delete it from the, the country's maps all over the world. Well, for those leading the response to the humanitarian crisis, the pandemic has made their job harder and triggered a collapse in financial support. Earlier, I spoke to Jean-Nicolas Beurs, who's the head of the UN Refugee Agency in Yemen. He told me about the current situation in the country. Yemen is a country which has been facing a violent conflict for the last uh, five years. Half of the health facilities have been destroyed. Uh, UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency, is still uh, supporting 3.6 million internally displaced and more than 280,000, mainly Somalia refugees who come to Yemen. COVID-19 is really the, uh, the last straw which may break the, the camel's back of Yemen. People have little access to health facilities. Most people will eat only once a day. We fear really that the coronavirus will uh, take a toll on the Yemeni population, which is already very weakened. 
what is really critical is that the international community has not given us enough uh, funding to be able to still save life in Yemen today. What kind of projects are at stake then? So now we are running out of money to provide cash assistance to hundreds of thousands of uh, people who have been displaced by the conflict. Without this money, people won't be able to buy food, won't be able to pay the rent in uh, substandard uh, shelters, won't be able to feed their, their kids or buy medicine or buy clothes. And therefore, uh, we are cutting a lifeline for them. How difficult is it for you to really get an idea of, of how many people are suffering with this disease? And how close can you get to them? How can you get into the community at the moment? So the country is divided in two parts. In the south, the internationally recognised government of Yemen is trying to record cases. So we have a, a sense of the number of uh, people dying from coronavirus. At the same time, we know that a number of people are, di are dying from other causes which have the same symptoms cholera, dengue fever, and we are missing the test to really make sure that people have been infected with coronavirus. In the north, the authorities have decided not to release any uh, data about the coronavirus uh, infection and, and death and recovery, so it's far more difficult. In the past, despite the conflict, we could go to the communities, uh, taking the necessary precaution, but we still could move around. It's becoming much more difficult. International staff are on uh, lockdown. In the rest of the country, a number of uh, measures have been taken, like curfew, local lockdown. But one thing which is very worrisome in Yemen is that there has not been the same measure taken elsewhere of asking people to stay home. With Eid celebration coming up this weekend, we really fear that communities will come together to celebrate the end of Ramadan, and therefore the transmission will be full-blown. There was a unilateral ceasefire that was declared. Is that helping the situation at all? Is it actually being respected? The ceasefire, unfortunately, has not been uh, entirely respected. Uh, bombing and shelling and, and fighting on the ground is still ongoing. Every other day, we have population who have their houses destroyed, who have to, to flee in, the, in this blink of an eye to save their life. So you have families with children, with persons with disabilities, with elderly and, and with women, who are literally living in the open, facing the elements. Last uh, two weeks, we had flooding, we had massive rain. So it's quite a desperate situation, and we really appeal the international community to help us. Do you think Yemen's been forgotten? Unfortunately, I think that Yemen has been uh, forgotten by... Uh, Western government and, and societies and the population. I do understand that uh, in, it's difficult times for everyone. We have to take care of our loved one at home. We need to invest in our public health services. We have concern about the economy, but we are one single world and not showing solidarity with Yemen today means that we will pay the price tomorrow. That was Jean-Nicolas Boeuf from the UN in Yemen. Well, the coronavirus has forced nations around the world to concentrate on fighting the pandemic inside their own borders. But the former Foreign Secretary, Lord William Hague, warned this week Britain can't afford to drop its guard. The world is becoming a more dangerous place. It was already becoming more dangerous. And this, I think, accelerates it. There is clearly... There's going to be something of a struggle 
within many countries and between countries in the wake of COVID-19 about whether we are going in a more globalist direction or a more nationalistic uh, direction. And we don't know how that will turn out. Christopher Lee, our defence analyst, is still with us. Christopher, governments are being faced with their problems at home and growing instability around the world. William Hayes, quite right about that. You've got to look and you don't have to look very far. I mean, for example, the Israelis have started a... a electronic war against Iran, and this is to help America in the, in the Gulf states. And they're, they're setting the, the electronics in Iranian ships on wrong courses, they're diverting them, etc. And that is going to cause an international incident, so they hope, uh, which they can actually, with the Americans actually turning on the Iranians. It's very, very important for the, the, the Israelis uh, to make sure the Americans do not lose interest in picking a fight with Iran. And that is where the next confrontation, they believe, might come. Not with China, but with Iran. And there have been questions um, this week about a new extension to what China calls a logistics base pier in Djibouti, uh, where both China and the US have bases. What do you make of that? If you look at Djibouti, near the Gulf of Aden, Somalia to the south, Ethiopia to the west, uh, Eritrea to the north, it is right in the middle of a burning cauldron, which is about to sort of tip over. The Chinese have developed the fourth aircraft carrier, and they have this power projection force, which is at the moment standing off uh, the coast of Taiwan. But it is that where it's headed for is Djibouti. And once it's there, with half a day steaming from where the American forces are in the Gulf of Iran, all this opened back really about sort of three years ago. It's now complete. The Americans are getting so upset about it because they've got an American camp just to the north of here. They send out daily things called NOTAMs, which is short for Notice to Airmen. And they're saying that the Chinese are coming with this aircraft carrier. This aircraft carrier, which is the, the Shenyang, which has got its 45 or so aircraft on board. And they everybody has to be on standby. When you're telling pilots to get on standby and go to grade three, which means fire. And if somebody has a go at you, then you can have a go at them as the Americans did with their pilots the other day with Iran, you know you're in a, in a place of tension. But you're in a great tension at a time when the whole world doesn't know what to do with itself. And that's when you get sort of dubious decisions taken. Well, lockdown restrictions are slowly being eased in many parts of the world, but very cautiously. One fear is that the virus could return with a second wave of infections, and that's had an impact on plans for the British military in Canada. Colonel Mark Elwood is the Batas commander. They've made a decision that there will be no overseas battle group level training happening this year. It's a matter of balancing risk because we don't quite know what's going to happen with the virus. It could bounce back very easily. And B, the UK is committed to uh, COVID and, and, and it just doesn't have the resources to enable the overseas training. The collective training that is going to be done will be compromised and minimised and it will be delivered both in the UK and Germany. Whilst we're not training, we're taking a training pause in Canada for 2020, he has given us an incredibly ambitious programme for 2021. It will see increased volume and increased complexity of the training for next year. Meanwhile, in Cyprus, there's a little more freedom, as Chuck Adolfi explains. In comparison to the rest of the world, you could say things are pretty positive here in terms of figures and restrictions, which have begun to be lifted in line with the Republic of Cyprus, with relaxations on things such as both shops and exercise. And it's now possible to take a dip in the sea or play a game of golf or tennis, although social distancing guidelines must be maintained and these activities can only be done in pairs. 
It's also now possible to exercise out of station, a welcome move for cyclists here. The Republic of Cyprus has begun to reopen with industries such as the construction industry going back to work and shops have now reopened except for malls and shopping centres. Although international travel is sparse, the air bridge does continue to operate through Akrotiri of any person under strict instruction to quarantine for a period of two weeks upon arrival. And the community spirit still shows no sign of fading. The BFC community continues to quiz, party in their gardens and support one another. A gradual return to the so-called new normal has been welcomed cautiously here in British Forces Cyprus. Well, finally this week, some welcome news for fans of aerobatic displays who live in Lincolnshire. That is the Red Arrows practising in the skies over RF Scampton this week. After the news, they'll be staying in the county. This week, ministers have decided that when Scampton closes in two years' time, they'll move down the road to RF Waddington. Christopher, um, the people will be very happy there in Lincolnshire, won't they? Rutland is special. Cottesmore, Wittering, uh, Luffenham, but Scampton most of all. Scampton was the home of 617 Squadron, the Dambuster Squadron. May 1943, they did the dams and became probably the most famous, apart from the Battle of Britain, pilots uh, uh, ever, people like Guy Gibson. I suppose one of these days, very shortly, the Chancellor is going to turn around to his, his chief secretary and he's going to say, who's going to pay for all the problems we've had in the past sort of 18 months? And they'll be looking at the defence budget. And one of the things they will look at is the future of the Red Arrows themselves. Can we afford them? Ah, yeah, but they always say that, don't they? And they survive because of their important value as ambassadors, if nothing else. I think it's the way they fly. You imagine that coming over your back garden if you're chief secretary, you get an idea. You're not going to sort of recommend that we get rid of them, are you? And that's it for this week. Thanks to all of our guests. Don't forget you can get in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. And at bfbs.com slash SITREP, you can listen back to past episodes and subscribe to the podcast. For now, though, I'm Kate Chabot. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.